0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that no matter what season we are in our lives, that it always speaks to us. Because it is living and active. And it cuts us to the quick. Lord, I thank you that it reveals deep truths of who you are, who we are, who we are in relation to you. And the great gift of salvation you have given to us. Lord, I pray that we would not take that for granted. We would not take your word for granted. Because it is our life. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Aurora was younger, uh, she and I liked to watch The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross on PBS. You guys know this guy, right? There's just something about his soothing voice that lulled her into a peaceful state. and I'm not going to lie, lulled her dad into a peaceful state as well. In fact, I saw there's an app out there now that offers loops of recorded audio from Bob Ross's show to help you fall asleep at night. Has anybody seen that app out there? For a price, that is. You've got to pay for it. I looked into it. You've got to pay for it. What well, made Bob Ross's show so popular it was not only his pacifying voice, but his mantra that anyone could paint, right? Didn't matter who you were, anyone could paint. He helped to take something that seemed only for those who were art geniuses or had gone to art school and had made it something easily accessible to the average person. You'd watch one of his shows, though, and towards the beginning it didn't look like much, right? It would just look like a bunch of blobs and formless shapes. Over the course of the episode, however, as he would add layers, you would see the landscape he was painting come to life. You'd start to see it emerge. It didn't start out that way, though. It just started out looking like a mess, is what it looked like. I saw a meme on social media this week that said, you are both a masterpiece and a work in progress at the same time. I have no idea who posted it or what its original intent was, but when we look at it through biblical eyes, it's absolutely true. God has called us to himself and has legally declared us blameless in his eyes or justified us. In that way, we're already a masterpiece by God's grace. At the same time, though, what starts out as a mess, God slowly changes layer by layer as a work in progress. Paul had to point out and remind the Corinthian believers of something that is, in and of themselves, that they're not that great. It's only by God's artistic recreation that they are masterpieces. At the same time, God is showing us that while we're complete messes from time to time, that God has said, not said, all right, that's it, I can't do anything with this, throw the paintbrush and storm out of the room. Every minute of every day, God is still working on us, both as His masterpiece and as his work in progress. This is seen in the in the two sectional declarations of our passage this morning. And the first point that we come to is that it has nothing to do with us. None of this has anything to do with us. We're continuing on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn there. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. It's in the New Testament. Please also turn there so we can see this all together. Chapter 1, verse 26, and Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Paul's just gotten done talking about the extent of God's work in their lives. That it's only by His grace and His work that they are worth anything. While that sounds ridiculous, it's actually their and our only saving grace. Remember, from when we've covered the background of this letter, if there was one reputation the Corinthian church had in Scripture, it was, do you remember? Arrogant self-centeredness. If there was one reputation the Corinthian church had in Scripture, it was arrogant self-centeredness. The extreme wealth of Corinth as a port city aided in the attitude that had rooted itself within the church. Paul started this section off by pointing out to the Corinthians... I thank my God always concerning you, not because of you, but for the grace of God which is given you, which has been given you in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, God is faithful. Not you guys, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He starts this whole section off with these verses. He moved on from that basic declaration of the underlying foundation of our faith to how that underlying foundation of our faith, that is, and how it has nothing to do with us, into how nowhere in that foundation is there any cause or reason for disunity in the body of that faith. In fact, it's the complete opposite. That underlying foundation of our faith is the one cause and reason for unity in the body of faith. From there, Paul went on to talk about how the one underlying foundation of faith in Jesus is unlike anything else the world has ever offered or ever will offer, and God designed it to be that exact way. We talked about that last week. That goes completely counter to the world's wisdom, and it crushes the whole arrogant and self centered mindset that was rampant within the Corinthian church. It all connects. That's just one aspect of the wisdom of God. Connections and life applications that you didn't even know were there and that the Holy Spirit reveals to you didn't come out of nowhere. They were always there. We just don't see them until certain times in our Holy Spirit transformation when they're revealed to us, but they're always there. God's design by His grace is free from human limitation and lack of anticipation or understanding. It's free from all of that. See, anything wrought in the basis of human ability or ambition will always fail in some way. It will always not see everything or take everything into account. It will always miss something. It will always overlook something or belittle something, which will come up further on down the road. Just look at the plans our politicians are put in place. Worldly humanity only understands two ways of looking at the world. Not caring about the hard things and making enjoyment or the pursuit of something their basis, or basing their worldview on human merit. There's only two ways this world can look at itself, at the surrounding world. Basing it on not caring about the hard things and making enjoyment or the pursuit of something their basis or basing their worldview on human merit. But human merit only goes so far because to base a worldview on merit understands that there is a standard somewhere. And if there's a standard, there are only two possibilities. You fail or you make how well you follow the standard your God. Only two results out of that. Basis: You fail or you make how well you follow that standard your God. There will always be more that you can do. You will always be looking over your shoulder. There will always be some deity to appease. There will always be a shortcoming. In short, a system based on human merit will never be sufficient because it's always hindered by human design. But God's design existed outside of human intelligence and understanding. We read last week that it's simply impossible for humanity to come to God through its own intelligence and understanding of the world. It's only through the revelation of the design by God and the establishment of that design by inaugurating it through the incarnation of God into a man named Jesus. Because of that, nothing in or about our faith has anything to do with us. We weren't good enough people, or enough of a societally high status, or even smart enough to come to God. That's exactly what Paul points out to the Corinthians in verse 26. That's by God's design, verses 27 through 29. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. There are different versions of worldly wisdom and strength. One is based on thinking one is extremely intelligent, whether or not that person is in a decent societal position. This is based on truly thinking you've got the world figured out. I got it all figured out. And you think that you have the world all figured out because you've based it on your wisdom and experiences in life. Another one is believing that the strength of your own personal resolve or society or wealth is enough. Some of the Corinthians had every reason to trust in their own societal strength, their own wealth, their own resolve. The Jewish community had every reason to trust in their own strength of following the law. The pagan Greek culture had every reason to trust in their own philosophies. The Romans had every reason to trust in the strength of their empire. But God chose to come to earth as a peasant in a Roman oppressed land to be challenged and belittled at every turn by his religious and societal leaders, to be mocked and misunderstood by his own people, and ultimately to die a tortuous death by execution of the lowest societal standard. The establishment of the revelation of his design of salvation, get this, after all of that, the the establishment of the revelation of his design of salvation, was then offered to those considered the lowest in society. Slaves, prostitutes, and the reviled tax collectors. That doesn't make any earthly sense, does it? When God had Paul write that he chose the base and despised of the world to include in his inheritance, he truly meant it. The beauty of the gospel is that there are no human limitations, standards, or expectations attached to it. You could be considered nothing by society. You could be hated by society. You could be considered a lost cause and completely given up on by society, and yet there will always be one who will never give up on you. You could be considered the most repulsive, disgusting, dysfunctional person in the world and yet there will always be one who sees you as beautiful. You could be a complete mess with everyone turning their back on you and the only thing you have is your faith in Jesus and not only is God recreating you into his work of art but you are already God's masterpiece. That doesn't make any sense to the world. That doesn't make any sense to the world. According to the world, you should have something to do with your eternal destination. You know, you're a functional member of society. You're an intelligent person. Or at the very least, you're generally a good person. You should have something to do with your eternal destination. Destination. But God chose to shatter all of that human standard and expectation and make his design open to everyone regardless of background, societal position, wealth or lack thereof or inherent sense of morality and especially to those who don't fit any of those human standards or expectations. God's family is one where everyone belongs. Everyone fits There is no standard or expectation other than the faith that God has given to you to take his sacrifice and resurrection as our only hope. It frustrates the world to no end. And that's the point. As Paul notes in verse 29, it gives all the credit to God. That's the whole point of it. Verse 29 so that no man may boast before God. It gives God all the credit. See, that even frustrates our human nature to no end. What matters to God is that we consider there is nothing worth boasting about ourselves except what He is changing in our lives. That's not God being egotistical. That goes all the way back to God's design for our salvation and therefore meaning for our lives. We can't have it both ways. We can't take peace in knowing that God's design for our salvation is not limited by human standards and expectations and is not limited by human intelligence, strength, or wisdom and then turn around and want to boast in those very same things. That's exactly what the Corinthian believers had trouble with. But as one biblical scholar pointed out, Paul rhetorically wanted them to take a look at their own congregation. Obviously, as he wrote in verse 26, he's asking, look around yourselves, guys. Look around at yourselves. As you look around, do you guys see many people who could boast about anything other than that God saved you and, are ch- and is changing you? So why are you transferring that line of thinking into the church? There is nothing we can boast about other than God's saving and transformation of us since he's already rendered all of that pointless anyway. Why line things up and compare each other according to them if God purposely went out of his way to shatter all of that? Even as believers in Jesus, our minds still humanly and naturally gravitate towards comparing ourselves to each other. Isn't that true? It's very easy to do just as what Jesus rebuked in his parable about the sinner and the Pharisee praying in the temple. The Pharisee thanked God. Think of the audacity of that. Thanked God god that he wasn't some horrible awful person and certainly not like the guy standing right next to him meanwhile that very same guy standing next to him simply cried out to god for his mercy upon him knowing he was a sinner and knowing there wasn't anything inherently good in him and certainly nothing to boast about himself And this is how Jesus ended that parable, which is very challenging for us. He said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what are we focused on? Comparing ourselves to each other? Trying to feel better about ourselves? Feeling worse about ourselves because we're comparing ourselves to others? As Paul says here in verse 29, it has nothing to do with any of that. It has nothing to do with us. All we can compare ourselves to is Jesus. That's all we can compare ourselves to. Knowing that God is in the process of changing us into His likeness, knowing we're not there yet and won't be until either we die or He returns for us. That makes things simple, doesn't it? That's what it says in the Bible. But yeah, we want to complicate all of that. But this is what makes everything simple. It all goes back to what we've been talking about these past few weeks and that it has everything to do with Jesus and nothing to do with ourselves or each other. That's how Paul finishes up our passage this morning and his overall message in this section. So he first talked about it has nothing to do with us, and how he ends this section is, probably already guessed it is everything to do with him. Verses 30 through 31. But by, notice, as we, I'm going to add emphasis on different parts here. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul starts out these verses perfectly. Because in fact, it summarizes everything he's been telling the Corinthian church since verse 9. But by His doing... You are in Christ Jesus. If one's pride hadn't already been crushed out of him or her before this point, this drove that point home. You weren't smart enough to come to Jesus, and even if you were, it wouldn't have mattered. You weren't societally powerful or popular enough to come to Jesus, and even if you were, it wouldn't have mattered you weren't talented or skillful enough to come to Jesus and even if if you were, it still wouldn't have mattered. And you weren't functional enough to come to Jesus and even if you were, it still wouldn't have mattered. You weren't even morally good enough to come to Jesus and even if you were, it still wouldn't have mattered. The Corinthians faith and our faith has nothing to do with us, but by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. Like I said before, that crushes any remaining pride out of us. Since it's by his doing, we don't get to call any of the shots and we're completely beholden to him. We don't get to make any judgments or comparisons between each other. We don't get to begrudge or belittle each other. We don't get to hold ourselves over anyone else. We are at Jesus' mercy, completely beholden to His grace. That smashes any remaining pride out of us. We are His church, bought with His blood and preserved with His power. That is both a challenge, but it is also a confirmation of what gives us peace. As Paul says, God's wisdom was revealed to us in Jesus. The mysteries of God that he chose to reveal to us, get this, were revealed to us in a base and despised person. The parables of the inner workings of the kingdom of the creator of the universe were laid out by a commonplace carpenter from the backwater town of Nazareth, who during his ministry was homeless and a frustration to his culture and society. That wasn't the way it was supposed to work, but that's the way it happened. True righteousness was revealed by Jesus to not be what everyone thought and expected it to be. True righteousness was not a blind and uncaring adherence to a set of rules. True righteousness was not something to work towards or earn. That goes completely counter to everything else this world believes, that you have to work towards, you have to earn it, earn your righteousness. But true righteousness needs to be given to us. It started with the knowledge and understanding that you were morally bankrupt and there was nothing inherently good about you and you could not do enough good things to outweigh the bad and you could not work hard enough to become a good person. You were morally bankrupt. Nothing inherently good in you. It was realized when the righteousness of someone perfect needed to be transferred over to you that destroys any system based on human merit sanctification through Jesus's death and resurrection revealed to us the overwhelming truth that since righteousness needed to be transferred over to us someone else also needed to do the changing in and of our lives We can create an environment to encourage growth, but ultimately it's out of our hands. True and lasting change cannot originate from us. We cannot will ourselves enough to change. Sanctification or transformation must and can only be done through the work of the indwelling uh, Holy Spirit. We can't even boast in how far we've come from where we were because that even wasn't us. It was the work of someone else. Lastly, in this section, Jesus revealed to us the cru- cruciality of redemption. We were enemies of God before he redeemed us. That's a scriptural truth. We were enemies of God before he redeemed us. See, the prevailing thought these days is that we're automatically on God's good side. We're born automatically on God's good side. Anything bad that happens to us is that sometimes he can be a jerk, and as long as we don't do something exceptionally bad, we automatically get to go to heaven. That's a prevailing thought these days. But Jesus revealed to us the cruciality, the need for redemption. There is no automatic placement on God's good side. We needed to be bought. The Bible tells us that our sin not only separates us from God, but it outright makes us enemies of God. Something needed to happen for us to have any hope. Redemption needed to happen. But since we were the enemy, riddled with the underlying cause for that status, someone else needed to take it upon himself to make that redemption happen. See, if left to our own human abilities, human achievement, human morality, guess what would happen? We'd still be enemies of God with no hope of restoration to him. If we simply relied on our own human abilities, human achievements, human morality, we'd still be enemies of God with no hope of restoration to Him. Jesus revealed to us that, one, our redemption as humans was a requirement for any reconciliation with God. And number two, that there was no way we could supply that. And number three, that he was and is the only one who could have paid for that redemption. Is that not the gospel in a nutshell? So truly, at the end of what Paul is describing and reminding the Corinthians of all of that, and God describing and reminding us all of that, these words at the end of this section truly sum up everything that Paul has been saying up to this point. Verse 31 again, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, not only is this a challenge for us, but it's a source of peace. We cannot and must not compare ourselves with anyone else because it all has to do with Jesus. He chose to call us in the stage of life we were in and he is the one transforming us at the speed and level that he is transforming us in and at. That's all up to him. Stop comparing yourself with somebody else. There is no room for pride or self-promoted goals because Jesus' church is Jesus' Jesus' church. Likewise, we have nothing to boast in except for how much Jesus is changing us. At the same time, because our faith has everything to do with Jesus, we can boast freely about what he's doing in our lives and how much he's been changing us we have that full blessing and can, with full force and no restrictions, declare to those around us the power of God at work in our lives, freeing from different chains, empowering us to speak more abundantly about Him, and changing us from who we used to be. And because of that, we can declare to those around us, look at how Jesus has made me His masterpiece and His work in progress. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that are both a challenge and an encouragement to us. We thank you that, it, thank you that it, it has nothing to do with us. We thank you that it has everything to do with you because we would have no hope if it had anything to do with us. But Lord, we thank you for the overwhelming hope and power of your Son. We thank you that it is the only thing we have to stand on. And that you are the one changing us. And you are the one changing us at the level and speed that you've decided to change us in. And we can rest in that. Lord, we thank you for who you are. That you have saved us. That you have called us. That you have justified us. And that you are in the process of sanctifying us. And I pray all these things in the, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please.